1941, in his State of the Union address, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke to the American people about the reasons that America was going to support the Allied forces during World War II. And it was in this speech that he, he outlined what he called the four freedoms, these, these freedoms that every human being is entitled to. They included the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom from fear, and freedom from want. And it was this speech that inspired Norman Rockwell to paint this series of paintings called The Four Freedoms. And the one that stands out to, to us today is the one that's freedom from want. It's this beautiful picture of a Thanksgiving meal, a traditional Thanksgiving meal. And as you see that picture, it's just nostalgic. It, it's, it's inspiring. And it was intended to be that because in difficult times, like in times when your, your nation is on the brink of war with, with the rest of the world, it's good to have something nostalgic. It's good to have that time where you take a moment and you look back on the best times of your life and, and then look forward to even more times like that. And that's what this painting does. And that's, uh, I, I love Norman Rockwell and I just, uh, all of his paintings, but especially this one because we need that, don't we? Don't we need those times when we look back and say, wow, I can't believe what's happened in my life and I can't wait to see more things like that happen. And the great thing about Thanksgiving is that often the greatest times of Thanksgiving happen out of difficult circumstances. It was General Washington who, who declared a day of Thanksgiving even in the middle of our fight for independence from Great Britain. A number of years later, it would be Abraham Lincoln, a tired and weary president who would declare a national day of gratitude and thanksgiving amidst the backdrop of the bloodiest war in American history. Some of the greatest times of thanksgiving come out of our difficult circumstances. I mean, is that, has that been your experience? I know it's been mine. When, when we finally come to realize our desperate need and when we see God's deliverance and God's presence in our life, it leads us to a point of thanksgiving. And that's what we see in a man called Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now a little bit of history about this story is uh, Naaman is living in the 9th century. And he's living in Syria, north of the kingdom of Israel. And during this time in the kingdom of Israel, there's a man named Jehoram who is king. And Jehoram and uh, the Israelite people are constantly at war with Syria and their king, Ben-Hadad. In fact, Ben-Hadad, is, is the Syrians are the more powerful nation, and they're continually sending these raiding parties into Israel. It's not like a war like we would think of it. They just go in, they take stuff, and they leave. And Naaman is the commander of the Syrian army. He's the top general. He's number two in the land. He answers only to the king. Naaman has, has power. Naaman has position. But Naaman has a problem. Naaman's problem is that he has leprosy. He's got some disease. We don't know exactly what it is, but some disease that affects his skin. And because of that, he's now an outcast. Because in the ancient world, people didn't want to didn't look at someone who had leprosy because it, it disgusted them. It reminded them of the, the rotting flesh of the dead. 
And so Naaman has this problem. He's, he's cast out. Even though he's powerful, even the lowest slave in Syria wouldn't want to be in his skin. But underneath the backdrop of this story of, of Naaman and Ben-Hadad and, and Jehoram, the kings and these powerful people, there's another story that takes place in the background. It's this story of a little servant girl. A girl who was taken captive by the Syrians in one of their raids. Likely these are men who are under Naaman's command. And she's taken into captivity and she's put into slavery in Syria. But she's put into the house of Naaman and she's serving under Naaman's wife. And she comes to hear about Naaman's condition, about his leprosy. And her immediate thought is if Naaman would just go into Israel... There's a man there named Elisha, a powerful prophet of God. And God is using Elisha to do mighty things. And if Naaman could just go to Israel, then he could be healed. And so she tells Mrs. Naaman, we don't know what her name is. We tell, she tells Mrs. Naaman, look, if he would go to Israel, then he could be healed. If he would go to the God of Israel. And so Mrs. Naaman tells Naaman, and Naaman comes before Ben-Hadad II the king of Syria, and he says, uh, you know, I know we keep picking on these people over here in Israel, and they're not going to be real happy to see me, but would you give me a letter to let them know that I'm coming in peace so that I can go into Israel and get healed? And so the king says, absolutely, not only that, but I'm going to send you with wealth beyond what they could have ever imagined. He sends them with gold, he sends them with silver, and he sends them with clothes, and the amount of that today Some scholars believe it would be equal to three-quarters of a billion dollars. Three-quarters, let me say that again, three-quarters of a billion dollars. That's a lot of money, right? I could use that right about now. That would be a great Christmas. We'd have the best Christmas ever. But he goes into Israel, and he ends up going to the king. And he takes this letter with him, and he takes all of this stuff and this big entourage with him because he's a big deal. He's Naaman. He's second in command. He's the top general. And he goes into Israel, and that's where we pick up with the story in verse 7. In verse 7, we read that as soon as the king of Israel, that's King Jehoram, read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? You have the king of Israel who's there. And his very first thought when this happens is that this has to be a trick. They're trying to trick me. They're trying to provoke me into a fight because he's sending Naaman to me to be healed. And I can't heal anybody. I'm not God. And so he's afraid that when when Naaman goes back and he's not healed, that that's going to cause a war. And so he tears his robes. That's, that's a, a way in the ancient world to show distress, that bad things are coming. He wants everyone else around him to know that, that bad things are coming. So that would be like the, the amber alert today, right? So he just took it from threat level green all the way up to red. He's like, bad stuff's coming. Get ready. But notice the difference between the little servant girl who's not even named in this story, and the king of Israel. Notice the difference in their responses to this circumstance. The little girl who had no position, no power, no wealth, had great faith in God. And the king who had great position, great power, and great wealth, had no faith in God. 
Her first thought was of God. His first thought was of himself. That's all he can think about is himself. Well, Elisha hears about this, and he sends word to the king. He says, look, don't you remember that you have a prophet of God who's doing mighty things in your country? Send Naaman to me, and I'll tell him how to be healed. Red Rover, Red Rover, let Naaman come over. And so Naaman goes on over with his whole entourage. They go to Elisha's house, and here's what happens. Listen as we, as we pick up in verse 8. It says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. The implication is not just that there's a prophet, but there is a God in Israel, a real God in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. I thought, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So here's what happens. Elisha says, send Naaman on over to my house. And then he doesn't even have the decency to come out and talk to Naaman himself. He just writes a little note with his messenger and sends it out and says, go and dip yourself in the river seven times. Now, this ritual of dipping in the river seven times would have been somewhat familiar to Naaman because in the ancient Mesopotamia in this area, there was a cleansing ritual that took place in other parts of this region where someone would go into a river, they'd face upstream, and they would dip seven times, and then they would turn around and face downstream and dip seven times. Then they would take gifts and release them into the river to appease the local gods. So this idea of going to the river to dip seven times, while what Elisha describes is a little bit different than what Naaman may have been familiar with, he still would have been familiar with this idea of going to the river and dipping himself to be cleansed. But in this case... It was an act of faith in the God of Israel, the one true God. But Naaman is about to walk away from all this. He's about to walk away from the opportunity to be healed for two reasons. Number one, his pride is hurt. His pride is hurt. Doesn't Elisha know who I am? I'm Naaman. I'm the general in Syria. I've come all the way down to this little podunk town in Israel, and this prophet, this little man of God, can't even come out and see me, can't even tell me face-to-face what I'm supposed to do. Not only that, second reason he's about to walk away is because he's upset that God's not going to work the way he thinks God should work. He thinks there should be some big ceremony and that there should be this, this recognition that now Naaman is healed. That there needs to be some special thing that takes place, but God just gives him a simple directive. Through Elisha, Elisha just says, look, if you trust in God and you follow through with this simple thing in obedience, then you'll be healed. Just trust in God and you'll be healed. And Naaman is about to walk away from all that because it doesn't fit his picture of the way it should work. Now let's pick up again in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. All right, so Naaman is there. And, and I can't really blame him for not wanting to go to the Jordan. You, you remember a couple of weeks ago before it started raining, before we got a couple of heavy rains, what the San Gabriel River looked like? It was just kind of this little muddy puddle, right? And, and you probably jump in it and go about ankle deep, maybe to your knees if you're lucky. But it was just this kind of nasty, muddy, little dinky river. And that's, that's what the Jordan River was compared to the great rivers of Syria. So I don't blame him for not wanting to go in and do it. But, but finally, his servants talk sense in, into him. They say, look, man, swallow your pride. We've come all this way, and if he'd asked you to climb a mountain on your knees, wouldn't you have done it? If he'd asked you to make some great sacri- sacrifice, wouldn't you have done it? Well, yeah, I would have done it. That would have been a great show. That would have been an amazing thing to see. Well, then, why not do this simple thing that God is asking you to do? So Naaman finally agrees, and he does it, and he's healed. And then, from there, this is where we really get into learning, from, learning lessons from Naaman about thanksgiving. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please now... Accept this gift from your servant. So what do we see here? We see that Naaman's thanksgiving is a response to God's healing. Naaman's thanksgiving is a response to God's healing. This great man who had leprosy ought to serve as a reminder to us of the mark that we bear. Not on our skin, but on our souls and on our spirit. The mark of sin. Yet just as Naaman was cleansed through his faith in God, his trust in God, so too we can be cleansed through Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? That we can be healed, not just physically, but spiritually through Jesus. We can be clean and made new, just like Naaman's skin was made clean and new. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus comes across ten lepers, He has an encounter with these 10 men who all have leprosy. And he tells them, he says, go show yourself to the chief priest and you'll be healed. And while they're on their way, they look down and they realize that their skin is healed. But only one of them turns around and goes back to give thanks to Jesus. Not even an Israelite, a Samaritan, another outcast. The man that you never would have expected is so humbled at this healing that he comes back and he falls at Jesus' feet And he says, he begins to worship Jesus. And Jesus looks down at him and he says, rise and go, your faith has made you well. That's interesting, right? Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Because the other nine men were healed as well, physically healed. They they had no more leprosy. Yet Jesus tells this man who's already physically healed, your faith has made you well. So that means Jesus must be talking about something more than just physical healing. And it becomes clear as we study this story that what Jesus really has in mind is this man's spiritual healing. That this man's faith has not only removed the the spots and the stains on his skin from leprosy, but it's removed the leprosy of his soul, the mark of sin that he bears the moment he trusted in Christ. 
And that same, same opportunity is available to us. Though this man would die, the leper, though he would die, because of his faith in God, he will live again. In recent years, it seems like the story of the first Thanksgiving just keeps being rewritten and rewritten. I mean, you, you read things, and, and all of a sudden, someone wants to say, oh, no, that's not the way it happened. It happened this way, or, or what they were really celebrating was this. And we have all these revisions to, to the history of the first Thanksgiving. Some of those are, are actually, you know, kind of interesting. You know, one of the things that's come out recently is, is that, um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Indians and the Pilgrims did not actually sit down and watch the Dallas Cowboys and Detroit Lions play football on that first Thanksgiving. That, that's a tradition that started much later. But for, for all the rewriting of the history of the first Thanksgiving, there's one thing that is inescap- inescapable. No matter how much secular historians try to change this one fact, it remains. You see, Thanksgiving was not about the pilgrims thanking the Indians. It wasn't even about them thanking each other. It was a time of worship where they came before God and they gave thanks to God. They were thanking him because of not just his physical healing, bringing them through that first tough year, but because of the amazing healing that they had received through Jesus Christ. They were recognizing the one true God. And their thanksgiving was a confession of God's glory. A confession of God's glory. Just like Naaman's thanksgiving. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. It says, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept this gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make a burnt offering and sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon and to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant. And Elisha said, go in peace. All right, so what we see is that this becomes a confession of God's glory, right? He's rejecting all of the false gods that he previously worshipped, all the false gods that were incapable of bringing healing to him, and he's recognizing the one true God. I mean, have you, have you been in that place before? Have you looked at your life and, and looked at the false gods that you look to for healing, for comfort, for joy, only to recognize that they're incapable of bringing those things. But there is one true God who is there, who's ready and willing to welcome you and to, to give you that healing. A few years back, there's there a Wall Street Journal article uh, that actually talked about the, the political incorrectness of Thanksgiving holiday because they, they pointed out, again, just as we mentioned earlier, that as much as historians try to rewrite that first Thanksgiving, it was all about giving God glory for what he had done. Just the same way as Naaman's Thanksgiving. His, 
his rejoicing that he, that he has is all about giving God the glory. He says, I don't want anything to do with those other gods ever again. I'm going to worship the one true God. That's who I'm going to worship. Thanksgiving, it's, it's not about thanking each other, although hopefully you thank the cook who got up at 5 o'clock to get that turkey in the oven. It's not about thanking our lucky stars. It's not about thanking, you know, the big forces out there. You know, it's not about, oh, life has smiled upon me. No, it's an opportunity for us to recognize God's presence in our life and to give him glory for that because of his healing presence. Look again at verse 16. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now at this point, I'm thinking that Elisha has to be a little bit crazy. We're talking about three quarters of a billion dollars that is sent to him. Gold, silver, clothes. And Elisha says, no, I'm good. I don't need it. And he's living in a little hut and he's, he's just there in this little bitty town in Israel trying to scrape out a living. And here comes this man giving him all this money. And he says, no, I don't want it. I don't need it. Because Elisha knew that what the renewed Naaman needed to understand was that God doesn't need his money. God didn't need Naaman's power. And God didn't need Naaman's influence. But Naaman needed everything from God. And so Elisha says, no, I'm not going to accept this gift because I need you to understand that, that your thanksgiving is not to repay God, but to rejoice in him. Your thanksgiving is not to repay God, but to rejoice in him. Listen to Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. It says, but when the kindness and love of our God of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by his Holy Spirit, whom he poured on, out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. <clears throat> There's a lot going on in those couple verses. But one of the first things it talks about in verse 5 is that God does not save us because of righteous things we have done. God does not extend his gift of salvation to us because of our good works or because of our church attendance or because of how much money, in the case of Naaman, how much money we can give. God gives his gift of salvation to us unconditionally and freely. This passage in Titus 3 goes on to talk about God's mercy. You might want to write this down because mercy and grace are two words that, that we talk about a lot and sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. But let me try to clarify a little bit. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we actually deserve. All right? So because of our sin, the Bible tells us that because every single one of us has sin, as everybody, can we all admit that? Anybody in here? Everybody? Who's, who sinned? At least once. It, once. I know once. All right, thanks. All right, so we all have that mark of sin on us. And the Bible tells us that even just one sin is enough to keep us separated from God for all eternity, that we are deserving of death. And even though that's actually what we deserve, God does not give that to us. 
because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place, to remove that penalty of our sin. And so instead, he gives us something else, which is grace, right? So if mercy is not getting what you actually deserve, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So in God's mercy, he doesn't give us death and eternal separation from him. And in his grace, he gives us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Is that a little bit more clear now? And here's, here's what else it says. Verse 7 says that we are justified. Now, justified is another big word. And all it means is that justified means that we are in right standing with God. That when God looks at us, he declares us righteous and we can have a right standing in a relationship with him. That's what justified means. So when God looks at us, for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the leprosy of our soul. He doesn't see the the sin-stained spirit that we have inside of us. Even though we continue to sin, even though we've trusted Christ, right? If you've been a believer for any time at all, you, you realize that hey, I still mess up. But God doesn't see that. Instead, he sees his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who took the penalty of our sins upon himself. And he no longer condemns us. And we're able to have that right relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something worth celebrating? Isn't that something worth giving thanks to God for? And and the fact that it's free. It's a free gift. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to pay for it. We simply say, I, I'm trusting in Christ alone as my Savior. And we are washed. We're cleansed and renewed. Just the same way as Naaman, when he trusted in God's plan, he was cleansed and renewed. Are you like Naaman before he was healed? Are you here this morning and, and you realize that you are in desperate need of God's healing presence in your life? Not because you have some physical thing, but you're coming to realize that that you are marked by sin. And that you need that to be cleansed from you. And the only way for that to happen is for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, I I hope that today you you will take the opportunity to say, yes, I'm trusting in Christ alone as my Savior. And then you can know that you are forgiven, that you are clean, just like just like the leper in Luke 17, your faith has made you well, that you are justified, that you are in right standing with God. I realize some of these concepts, especially grace, is hard for some people to grasp because we feel like there's gotta be something I can do. It can't be that simple. It's too easy. Why would God make it so easy? I've gotta be able to do something. Don't make the mistake that Naaman almost made. Remember, Naaman almost passed up God's healing because of his pride. He almost passed up God's healing because God wasn't working the way he thought he should work. And too often, we, we let ourselves be tricked into to not understanding God's grace. Because we think that it's about us. We think that there's something that we have to do that we have to be good enough, that we have to give enough, that we have to do enough And we don't realize that God makes it so simple. Do you remember what Naaman's servants said to him? They said, look, if God had asked some big thing of you, wouldn't you have done it? Yeah, yeah, I would have done it. 
Well, then how much more when he asks something so small? Throughout the Bible, you can go throughout the Bible anywhere you want, and as you flip through it, as you read through it, you're never going to find God saying, do all of these big things and you'll be saved. What we find is that God asks for something small. He asks for us simply to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross and rose again, and that when we trust in him, our sins are forgiven. You may be here this morning, and you may have had that moment already, that you've placed your faith in Christ, that you've been living that out, And if that's you, man, I hope this Thanksgiving is a great Thanksgiving for you. I hope it's an opportunity to respond to God's healing that you've already experienced. I hope it's a time to to think about God's glory and to confess that, but also to, to celebrate and rejoice in what God has done in your life. But I hope you not only learn from Naaman, but think back to that little girl. Think about this whole story wouldn't have even happened were it not for that little girl who knew about the God in Israel. He, she knew about his healing power. She knew how powerful he was. And even though she was powerless as a slave, she spoke up. She shared her faith with the people around her. And out of that simple act of obedience to God, we now have this great story of one of the most powerful men in the world at the time receiving God's healing and turning his life over to follow after God. And so if you're here this morning and you've already placed your faith in Christ, or maybe you just did a minute ago, man, I, I hope that you'll follow that little girl's example. Her faithfulness, her, her willingness to speak up and just give her testimony to the greatness of God. It just reminds me over and over again of how often we see throughout the Bible that God uses seemingly ordinary and, and what most people would say, like this servant girl, are insignificant people. She's not even named in the story. But God uses people like that to do extraordinary things. I mean, just think about what we're getting ready to start celebrating next week as we prepare for Christmas. That God sent his son. He wasn't born in a castle. He wasn't born with pomp and circumstance. He was born in a barn. Born in a barn. He went on to live a sinless life in humility. We read as he's traveling and he's ministering throughout Israel, he says, I don't even have a roof over my head. I don't own a home. I just go from house to house and I go wherever God calls me to go. He lives in humility, only to be crucified between two criminals, to die, be buried, and to be raised again. God uses what seems like something so ordinary, something so plain, to accomplish something amazing, our salvation. And so if, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I don't have, you know, I'm not director of any ministry, I don't have a big title at the church, I don't have some big position, so why would anyone ever listen to me? Listen, it's, it's not about that. God just calls us to be faithful. He wants to use everyday, ordinary people like us to accomplish great things simply by being a testimony to his greatness. And so my prayer for for every single one of us this Thanksgiving is that as you sit down around that table with your family, that Thanksgiving for you would be that time for you to respond to God's grace. That it would be a time for you to confess his glory. And that again, we could just rejoice 
in the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are just so grateful for your healing power in our lives. That you would choose something so simple as a, a baby to present yourself, the one true God of all the world would come as a little child to live a sinless life, facing all the temptations and struggles that every single one of us has faced, but to overcome all of those, to be without sin, to die for our sin, remove the penalty so that we could have right standing with you, so that, so that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. And we pray that we would just be faithful in confessing that and in leading others to that reality as well. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.